Charles Erdman was the author of a series of Bible commentaries in the first part of the last century. And he once made this statement that ritualism is baptized heathenism. Or probably a little more contemporary, ritualism is baptized paganism. What do you suppose he meant by that? Legalism is pagan religion dressed in Christian clothing. When we try to live by the rules, we imitate the principle of all world religions, which is, I'd rather do it myself. I'd rather earn my own way. I'd rather try harder to satisfy God, to satisfy his expectations. And when we try to live that way, we discover we don't make it. We saw last week that one of the major purposes of the law, Paul just presents it as the purpose of the law, was to protect children until we grow up until we're mature enough to take care of ourselves. Uh, the goal is that we grow up, that we become mature adults. And, and he used the image of the Roman adoption process in which the heir to the kingdom, the heir to all of his father's possessions, was treated as a child subject to the control of a guardian until such time as the father declared him to be ready to be an adult child, an adult heir. And at that celebration that they called adoption, they changed the child's clothes. And now he becomes identified as an adult son of the father. Paul tells us that's what the law was for. It was to be our guardian until such time as the Father's ready to declare us adult children, mature children of God. And Paul, as he talks about freedom as children of God, wants us to understand that we have to grow up we have to become adult children, able to stand on the basis of God's word with the direction of the Spirit of God before we can really be free. He's pointed out to us that a privileged child's, that they're little different than a slave until they grow up and receive the right to make their own decisions. People in Christ are no longer treated as slaves. In Christ, we're mature, adult sons or daughters. We're adult heirs in Christ. And so in Christ, we enjoy adult privileges. We enjoy freedom and we enjoy God's blessing. So Paul comes back to us in the passage we want to look at this week and asks us, why would we want to become or remain slaves? 
when God has declared us to be adult children, adult heirs. We concluded with verse 7 last week. I want to go back to that and look in verses 7 through 9, the change in us that has been the result of growing up in Christ and becoming adult children. Verse 7, he says, So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And here, that's a reference to an adult son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, now, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? To show how foolish this is, Paul presents three contrasts between our former condition in our present condition in Christ. He compares our pagan condition before we came to Christ with our position in Christ. And so we want to look at those three contrasts. The first is a contrast in our status. Our status has changed. Before, we were treated as slaves. Now we are treated as adult sons. Finally, we're free. Why would we want to go back to that previous condition? The second contrast he presents is a contrast in our worship. Before, these people to whom he's writing worshipped unreal gods. Gods that aren't gods at all. Gods made in man's image by human hands. Now we worship the one true God, the only real one, the maker of heaven and earth. Why go back to a system based on human creativity and imagination? And then the third contrast he presents has to do with our ability to know God. He tells us that before, we didn't know God. Our intellect was fallen. We were unable to know God. In fact, he goes on to say before, we didn't even know about God. We had no intellectual concept of the true God and what he was like. Now, we know God personally. In Christ, we can know him. In Christ, we do know him. Now, there's an interesting thing hidden in this passage behind this statement dealing with knowing God. There are two different verbs that are used, and their meaning is very different. I, I think I can make it clearest by using a couple of Spanish expressions. We have two verbs in Spanish. One is saber, 
And one is conocer. We know things. We saber about those things. Intellectual knowledge, we know them. But I don't say, yo sé a José Luis. Because I have a personal relationship with him, yo conozco a José Luis. And there's a whole lot more involved in that relationship than just that. But that's the basic idea, the difference between these two words. Before, we didn't even have an intellectual knowledge about God. Much less did we have a personal relationship with him. But now he changes the verbs here. And he tells us, now we know God. We have a personal relationship with him. That's a contrast with where we were before. Now we have a relationship, a personal relationship with God himself. He's a personal friend. He walks with us. And we enjoy fellowship with him. Why would we go back to that old state, isolated from God? Why go back to the ignorance of not even being able to know, head knowledge about him, understanding who he is and what he does and how he works, but now we have a personal relationship with him. In fact, there's a different level of knowledge he points out. Before I didn't know God, I didn't know him. But now he tells us, God knows me personally. This is a two-way relationship. This isn't just me knowing him personally. This is him knowing me personally as well. A true relationship. Uh, that contrast reminds me The contrast reminds me of our relationship with important people we know. We have different kinds of relationships with different individuals. A couple of famous names in the evangelical world, famous Bible teachers, Dwight Pentecost, and Charles Ryrie wrote many books and spoke many times on the Word of God, had a, a fantastic ministry of teaching God's Word. They're renowned Bible teachers, both now with the Lord. But if you had met them and you greeted them for me and said that Ralph sends a greeting, they'd have asked about me and in fact they'd have asked about Helen because we have a personal relationship with those people who whose names are famous but we have a personal relationship with them then there are other people like Chuck Swindoll uh, Carl Henry or for football lovers, Tom Landry, who is a famous Christian coach of the Dallas Cowboys. I have met all three of those people. 
We have eaten together. We have talked together. But if you were to go up to them, well, let me say a little more about Swindoll. I knew his mom and dad and his sister Lucy. Uh, we've shaken hands with all these people. We've held conversations. We have mutual friends. But frankly, none of those men would remember me. I remember them, but they would never remember me. They wouldn't remember having met me. You mentioned my name and they would give you a blank stare. In contrast to Pentecost and Ryrie, these guys wouldn't know who you're talking about. There are other famous people that I've never met, like Billy Graham. He's never met me. I've never met him. We don't know each other. We're brothers, but we don't know each other. And then there's others that I wouldn't recognize if I saw them on the street, though they're famous people. Where important people are concerned, for the most part, we might know them, but they probably don't know us. Now, why do I go through this litany of people? Because there's something incredible here. Do we really grasp the significance of the fact that we have a personal relationship? We are personal friends with the God of the universe? You know, alongside of being friends with Charles Ryrie, being personal friends with God is incredible. Why would I want to go back to being a stranger? Why would we go back to slavery? Now in verses 9 through 11, Paul talks about our response to that change from what we used to be to what we are now in Christ. Verse 9, he says, Now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. You might put in parentheses here, you're going through the motions. <coughs> I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. So after concluding the description of the change in us, Paul keeps raising that logical question, why would you go back? And in the midst of that dialogue, in the middle of that question, he presents four characteristics of the law, four negative characteristics of the law. First thing he tells us is that the law is weak. The law has no power. It can define sin, 
but it can't free us from sin. The law can diagnose our problem, but it can't cure us. It has no power to deliver us from slavery to sin. The second characteristic is that the law is worthless. It is poor. It doesn't have resources to buy anything we need. It is bankrupt. It can show us God's standard, but it can't get us through the problem that we don't do what it says. The third principle he mentions uh, is a little harder to grasp. Paul says this in several passages, and this is one of the places. He says it elsewhere in Galatians, and he says it in some of his other writings as well. It's represented by the statement he makes that we read a moment ago, that it represents miserable principles. That's a terrible translation. The, the word that's used there has nothing to do with miserable. Most more literal translations say the elementary rudiments of the world. That is, he's talking here about the principles that the world goes by and tells us that the law feeds those principles. It's based on those principles. And what are the principles that the world works by? I'd rather do it myself, thank you. And we mentioned this a couple of times in Galatians, but, but we come at it with the idea, if I just grit my teeth and try a little harder, I can make it. Have you tried that? Does it work? No matter how hard I try, I never measure up to God's standard. It goes by the principles the world goes by, but it can't solve my problem. Uh, this is what the small child learns in first grade. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I can do it. Really? Have you learned yet that we can't do it? There's nothing wrong with this level, but it's childish. It's not the response of adult children. We must grow up to become mature. We, we may do many of the same things that the law prescribes. But we have a different motivation. We need ethics that are based on love for God and love for one another. Seeking to please God and serve our neighbor. Fourth thing he tells us about the law is what we've been seeing throughout Galatians is that the law is enslaving. It robs us of the adult privileges, forces us to obey kids' rules. Better to make 
mature decisions than immature decisions based on trying to keep the rules. Living by the rules is an infant stage. It's what children do. Rules are for people who don't know how to behave. When you grow up, hopefully you don't need the rules to tell you how you're supposed to behave. It becomes second nature to us that we understand there are certain things we do and certain things we don't do, not because somebody made a rule, but because we want to please God or because we want to serve one another. We don't become mature by obeying rules. We become mature by considering the options in front of us and deciding what pleases God. Which choice would we make? Who would volunteer to go back to slavery? We would. And we do it all the time. It's illogical. No one in his right mind would want to go back to slavery. And yet we try all the time. Now, Paul injects in verses 12 through 20 his relationship with them personally, how he has reacted, interacted with them. How do we react to people who are walking in doctrinal error? Paul fears that his listeners are going to turn back, that his efforts will be wasted. And so he sets an example by how he treats them when he tries to bring them back to the truth of God's word that he's been showing them. When he does that, notice some things about how he deals with them. In chapter 1, he's made a clear distinction between false teachers and their followers. He doesn't deal with them the same way. He doesn't handle people who are influenced by the false teachers the same way he deals with the false teachers. He puts the false teachers under a curse for teaching false doctrine. But now he shows concern, pastoral concern and love for those who are being led astray by these false teachers. When we deal with people in error, we want to argue and criticize. Paul shows us that same tendency, especially when he defends the truth, but he doesn't stay that way. He doesn't end that way. Paul shows them pastoral concern, caring interest in them. And so what we see is his love and care for them. Verses 12 through 16 talk about their attitude toward Paul. He goes back to the first visit he made to them and reminds them how they reacted to each other and reminds them that when he was there with them, they had no doubt about his person or his message. The doubts have come in because of the Judaizers, the false teachers in their midst. He came to them sick. 
Verses 12 and 13 says, I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And yet they didn't reject him. They didn't have contempt for him. Verse 14, though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. That's how they responded to him when he came to them with the gospel. They welcomed him as a messenger from God, as if they'd been visited by Jesus himself. Who changed? They were willing to sacrifice their eyes if that would have helped Paul. Verse 15, what's happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. And that's taken as an implication that perhaps the thorn in Paul's flesh was an eye problem. Uh, I'm not going to go into that discussion. But certainly they were willing they were convinced by his presentation of the gospel and willing to do whatever they could to minister to him. Seeing how they responded to him, he wouldn't deceive them. So verse 16 says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Previously, they thought of his visit as a great privilege. What happened? He hasn't changed. What's convinced them to turn from what he was teaching them to the false teachers? And now Paul concludes this section by mentioning his attitude toward them in verses 17 to 20. And he contrasts that with the Judaizers who want to get something for themselves and his giving of himself to minister to them. The Judaizers want to make them dependent slaves. Verse 17 says, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. Paul has been zealous, jealous for them from pure motives. He wants to see Christ manifested in us. So verse 18, he says, it's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, and not just when I'm with you. My children, in whom I'm again in the pains of childbirth, until Christ is joined, is formed in you. He endures the pain because he sees the end. He wants to see Christ in them, see them come to maturity in Christ. So there's some lessons for us in Paul's response to them. He invests hard work. The, the word used here is a word for heavy labor, sweat-producing effort. He invests that hard work in them. He identifies with them. He speaks truth even if they don't want it. 
He seeks their good. He loves them as parents love their children. He suffers to see the kind of life he wants to develop in them. He wants to see Christ's life formed in them. And so he suffers the pains of childbirth, pursuing the goal of seeing Christ formed in them. And in spite of the pain, he wants to be with them. Verse 20, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. He thinks that if he went, he could help resolve the problem. So he has the attitude of a good shepherd, of the good shepherd. He's willing to pay the price for his lost sheep. Jesus' followers display that attitude. So how should we show our love for one another? By seeking to encourage one another to be all that God wants us to be. Paul's priority is to help us understand we're free. He spares no effort to be sure we get it. Christ died to free us from bondage to sin and to the law. So people who trust Christ, and this is the theme he's been telling us throughout the book of Galatians, people who trust Christ certainly possess eternal life and have that security that we have eternal life in him. But it also leads to enjoyment of abundant life, to a life that pleases God. And so there are two appropriate questions. The first is, are we enjoying new life? Have we trusted him? Are we still trying to earn our way? But the second question, perhaps more appropriate for us, are we walking by the power of the Spirit? living to please him. We walk that way, walking by faith, trusting God to do his work in our lives to make us all he wants us to be. Not trying to live up to the rules, but as adult children seeking to please our Father. Lord, we are grateful that in Christ you have given us all we need, that you have adopted us in that Roman sense of making us adult children, adult heirs of your blessings and of your promises. And Lord, we pray that we would truly grasp the significance of that, that in Christ, Walking by faith, we have all we need. We don't need to try harder. That the Spirit of God dwelling in us, walking by faith in what Christ has done for us, we can live a life that pleases you and honors you.
Lord, we pray this week. We don't know what circumstances we'll face, but we know that in the midst of them, we will need you. And we pray that walking by faith, we would cling to you, we would trust you, that our lives would be pleasing to you, and that as others observe our lives, they would be able to see in us how you have changed us from self-centered people seeking our will to your people, adult children, adult heirs of your promises. And that as people observe our lives, they would thirst for what you offer and find life in Christ. So use us to that end, we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.